If you have your Bibles with you today, I want you to open up with me to John chapter 12, and I'll read for us in just a moment from that chapter. If you would like to, you can follow along in your bulletins. The passage for our sermon is printed there. It's also on page 899 of those blue Bibles that are in front of you. Last week, as we continued through John, we read of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem by our Lord. And now, having read that, we come to uh, this last week of the life of our Lord and to teaching that goes from where we are today, chapter 12 on through chapter 17, that we can just acknowledge is some of the most beloved uh, scripture for the church, age after age, generation after generation, and we're not going to rush our way through it. We're going to take our time here. We're going to linger through it with a desire uh, to see Jesus, to sit at the feet of Jesus, to savor these words, this teaching of our Lord as he comes to the end of his earthly life, the end of his earthly ministry, and thus this, this teaching that he's doing to those who are in front of him, it intensifies and it focuses, and it's our joy to be able to be in this section for an extended time. As I read this for us today, remember what Jesus has said, heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will not pass away, or to say it in the language from Isaiah 55 that we read just a few moments ago, this word that we read now and hear now together will accomplish the purposes for which God has sent it into the world. It will accomplish the purposes that, it, that he has for it today, and may it do so as we hear this portion of his word. A brief section today, I'm going to read 20 through 26, the word of God. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me... The Father will honor him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the everlasting word. Thank you that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. Thank you that it is living and active. And now, Spirit of God, you who authored through men, wield it. Wield it well and use it in our lives to cut us where we need to be cut, to challenge us where we need to be challenged, to bind us up to heal us where we need to hear of the sweet grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for it. We pray in your name. Amen. A few weeks ago, when I was preaching the homily for Dottie's sermon, uh, for, for, for Dottie's service, 
one of the verses that I use, one that came to mind that I think uh, was so evident in her life was from Psalm 92. And if by chance you recall it, that passage describes the righteous, those who follow the Lord, the righteous as being like a tree that is planted in the house of the Lord. And, and it describes this tree being planted there as bearing fruit even into old age. It says that it's, it's always green, it's always full of sap. The righteous are planted there and they bear fruit into old age. Now, if you know your Bibles, you know that the Bible has a lot to say, both about trees and about fruit bearing. In fact, it begins on page one of your Bibles and it continues all the way through to whatever the last page happens to be of your Bible. In Revelation chapter 22, you will read more about trees and about fruit bearing. Now, typically speaking, when we think of fruitfulness, we think of the context of strength and of vigor. We, we think of bearing fruit in the prime of life, not in old age, but rather in, in the strength of life. That's when you bear fruit, and that's true whether you're talking about trees or you're talking about people. But while that is the norm, and while the Bible is glad to recognize that as the norm of how things work in this world, there's also this other current that exists in the Bible at exactly the same time, and it is this idea that you can bear fruit in old age. Think, for example, of Sarah. Think, for example, of Elizabeth and bearing in old age. The uh, Isaiah 54, the chapter right before the one that we read earlier, begins this way, sing, O barren one, Sing, O barren one, because the children that are going to for come forth from you are going to be more numerous than the children that are going to come forth from the married one. There is this other idea then that exists that in even old age and even in dying and in death, as is the case in our passage today, there can be a fruitfulness that is there. Fig trees should bear fruit. In particular, fig trees should bear figs. And people, Christians in particular, should bear fruit in their lives and desire to be fruit-bearing people. Now, Jesus in this section of Scripture, that is to say from the, the, the description I gave earlier from 12 on through 17, will have more to say about this. And uh, in John 15 in particular, he's going to talk a lot about fruit bearing and the kind of fruitfulness that he wants to see from his followers, from his people. But we can kind of see in our passage today how this this idea of fruitfulness and this call to fruitfulness begins to develop in this passage. So that's what we're going to look at in uh, the passage today. And uh, nicely, this, this passage kind of falls out into sections that can make sense for us. And the first of those sections is verses 20 through 23. The quick summary of them would be this. 
that in the midst of the feast, they're there in Jerusalem for Passover, some Greeks come up to Philip with a request, with a desire. Sir, we would see Jesus. Now, that is a phrase that has grown in importance over the years, and wonderfully so. It is emblazoned on any number of pulpits. I don't think it is on this one, but on many pulpits, especially in front of the preacher, it's, it's written right there. Sir, we would see Jesus is written there. It has full weight and full importance, but that's what they desire. They desire to see him. And, and, and Philip then goes to Andrew. Andrew and Philip then go to Jesus. And when they tell Jesus this, Jesus recognizes it as a pivotal moment in his life. It's a pivotal moment in his life and in his ministry. And you can tell that by the way he responds to it, saying, now, now the hour has come. So what's happening here? What, what's taking place in these four verses? Why did the Greeks show up at this particular point? Well, let's, let's work our way through it for a moment. Uh, when, when we say the Greeks appeared to him, they came to this place, we don't know anything else about them, okay? We don't even have G record of Jesus talking to them, responding to this request. We have no idea whether he met with them or not. They're anonymous except for the fact that they are Greeks coming up with this particular request. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they were uh, living in Greece and had traveled to Jerusalem uh, for the Passover, although that's possible. It's more likely uh, that they were Greeks who were living in towns and cities, probably up around the Sea of Galilee. And most likely, they were of the class of people that were known as God-fearers. Uh, God-fearers uh, were those who observed Judaism and they saw a lot of things that they liked. They liked the law. They liked the monotheism. They liked the worship of the people. And so they began to associate with the Jewish synagogues that were in various areas, but they were not yet proselytes. Proselytes would be those who had gone through the full uh, process, if you will, of being circumcised, going through the rites, and becoming Jewish. These are probably then Greek God-fearers who have come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover, again, probably to see what's going on, even though there was no possibility of them getting into the temple as Greeks and as Gentiles, and even though this was a uniquely national holiday for Israel, a day when Israel celebrated its deliverance out of captivity and bondage from Egypt. So they approach Philip. Why did they approach Philip? We don't know exactly. Uh, perhaps they approach Philip because Philip is a Greek name, and they thought, well, you know, Philip, that's, we, we know guys named Philip as well. Um, so they approach Philip, and they go up to Philip and give him this particular unique request. And when Philip hears this request, he seems to be puzzled, puzzled, puzzled enough that he doesn't go, well, you know, he's, he's right over here, let's go get him. But he goes to talk to Andrew about this request. Why? Why the going to talk to Andrew? Why that step is listed here prior to going to Jesus? Well, maybe, and again, we, we don't know this, but maybe Philip has in his mind that when Jesus had sent out the disciples earlier on a mission, 
he had told them specifically, go only to the lost sheep of Israel. And maybe he still got in his mind this idea that, wait a minute, we've been sent not to Greeks, uh, but instead we've been sent to Israel. We don't know exactly, but in any case, maybe there is some confusion. What then do you do with Greeks who want to see Jesus? And, and just so we're clear here, uh, the idea here isn't, you know, we want to catch a glimpse of uh, Jesus. They could do that. Um, the idea of seeing Jesus is they want to meet Jesus. They want to spend time with Jesus. They want to get to know Jesus. And so he goes to Andrew, and they go to Jesus, and Jesus recognizes this as, and I'm going to say this intentionally, Jesus recognizes they're coming to him now with this desire of Greeks to see him, to get to know him, to meet him as a pregnant moment. It's, it's a pregnant moment in world history that has taken place right now. And, and what Jesus says is it marks the arrival of the hour. The hour has come. Now, we've kind of traced this as we've worked our way through the Gospel of John to this point in the Gospel of John the hour has always been someplace off in the future. The, the, hour ha, the time hasn't been right. In fact, uh, just to give you one example of that, in, in chapter 8, it says this, These words he spoke, Jesus, in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. With this announcement, with those Greeks coming forward and Philip and Andrew coming into his presence and telling them that the Greeks have this request, that which is most anticipated has arrived and it seems rather innocuous that it would take place in this way with a simple request to see Jesus. In the book of Matthew, uh, also in this week of Jesus' life, Jesus said... From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out leaves, you know that summer is near. You know that summer is coming because you can look at the leaves. I think I've mentioned this before. John Erickson and I, uh, Erickson and I have this little game we play in the spring to see if our crepe myrtles made it through the winter or not. And we send pictures back and forth to one another to see, are, are the branches tender? Are the leaves coming out on the crepes? Did they make it through the year or did they not make it through the year? So what in this situation, what is the equivalent of tender branches? Jesus sees something in what has just taken place that marks the hour. What are the leaves? What are the tender branches? What, what's the idea here that, in, in the words of Jesus, from summer has arrived? How does he get that? And of course, the answer is the Greeks. The answer is the Greeks coming and saying, we'd like to see Jesus. That's it. That's, whoop, 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 I, I see that bud. I see that on the branch. In verse 19, which is not something we read uh, this week, but we read it last week, we heard about the snide comments 
that the, the angry comments, the murderous comments that the Pharisees make as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem at the triumphal entry, they say, look, the whole world has gone after him. The whole world's gone after him. For them, that's just derision and it's mocking, you know, fools following a fool, uh, fools following a charlatan. But we've seen this now so often in John that they spoke more than they realized. They said the whole world has gone after him, and the very next verse John tells us there were some Greeks who had come to Jerusalem, and they went up and wanted to see Jesus. And John is trying to say to us, look, look, look at how God is using even those words spoken in derision. And look at how this is now going to be fulfilled. And so, in point of fact, what is taking place here is the fulfillment of the old promise, the beginning, at least, of the fulfillment of the old promise. And the old promise is that the nations will stream to Israel's king even as Israel's leadership is in the process of rejecting him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. They're in the process of mocking him. They will kill him in a few days' time. But taking place at the same time, off, off camera or off to the side where they can't see Jesus, is this other group of people who are starting to come over. We, we would see Jesus. If they would mock him, if they would deride him, if they would ignore him, we would see him. And there are countless places where we can go in Scripture to see the old promise. I tried to put two of them in our service today. The one is from Isaiah 55, uh, verse 5 of Isaiah 55. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. That's taking place. This is exactly what is happening here. The Greeks haven't been called yet. The call hasn't gone out to them yet. It will, right? The call will go out to the Greeks. Paul will go to the Greeks and he'll proclaim it to the Greeks and he'll proclaim the good news to them, but the call hasn't gone out to them yet. Nevertheless, there they are. Here we are. Nevertheless, a nation will come up to you whom you haven't called and, and they will call on you. They will seek the Lord while he may be found. Temporally, they've got a few days. In, in, in the way the history shapes up here, they come and they seek after him. You can see the same thing, and I won't do it right now. Just look at Psalm 98. Psalm 98 that we read as the call to worship and then sang as the opening hymn describes the exact same thing. The glory of God revealed in the face of the nations and the nations streaming up to see Jesus. This is the sign. Life is coming to the Greeks. A dry branch is getting tender, and leaves are coming forth from that dry branch. These Greeks are coming up to try and see Jesus. The time of his glory has arrived with their arrival. 
Jesus had said, and we don't read this in John, we read it in the other Gospels, after he comes into the city, he cleanses the temple, and what does he say? My Father's house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Now, his Father's house, up to this point, has been exclusively for Israel, only for Israel. There's a court for the Gentiles, but that's on the outside of things. You don't go in there if you're a Gentile. And what you've got here, though no one except Jesus could have seen this at the time, is when these Greeks come in and say, sir, we would see Jesus, they are asking to go into the Holy of Holies in the midst of the Passover. Jesus is the Holy of Holies. He is the one who dwells in that place. And so the Greeks, and again, they wouldn't have appreciated this. The disciples wouldn't have appreciated this at that moment. But they're actually asking to step inside into the most intimate place because you don't get more intimate than being in the presence of Jesus and meeting that Lord. New buds, new shoots, New growth, new fruit is coming out. You heard the phrase collateral damage? This is collateral blessing. Collateral blessing. The target was Israel, and it hit the nations. It hit the nations. It hit Israel as well, but the gospel hit the nations as well. And that leads us to what Jesus then says in verse 24. How will this take place? How will Jesus be glorified? He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, how will he be glorified in this? How do the Greeks get into that exclusive tree? How, how do the Greeks get into the house of the Lord where trees can be planted and bear fruit even unto old age? How will Israel itself be redeemed? How does all of this fruit develop in the wilderness of this rebellious world, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat dies and falls into the earth, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. If it dies, it bears much fruit. How can such things be? How can new life come into a spiritually dead world and heart? The answer that Jesus gives is by planting a dead seed. That's how you get new life. Planting a dead seed. The living one. The one in whom is life. The one through whom all things were made the one for whom and by whom all things exist, he must die on a tree and be planted in the earth. That's how you get new trees. That's how you get fruitfulness. And when he is planted, what will grow up from him being planted in the earth is the tree of life. And the tree of life will have leaves and fruit. For what purpose? For the healing of the nations. For the healing of the nations. That's Revelation chapter 22 if you want to look it up later. 
The tree of life will be there, and its leaves and its fruit will be for the healing of the nations. This is the hour of glory. It is the glory of his death. It is the glory of his rising from the dead. It is, in the title of this sermon, a fruitful dying of which Jesus is speaking. Jesus is glorified, not only in his resurrection, he certainly is in the resurrection and in his ascension, but he is glorified in his life-giving, fruit-bearing death. His descent must be complete. The descent isn't yet complete at this moment. It's not yet complete. He was born into this world into a humble estate. This week he will suffer humiliation throughout his life and in his death, but his descent is only complete when the sinless one is buried in the ground. Put him in the ground, and from that life will spring forth. His death and his burial are the completion of his mission from God. It is finished. The descent is complete. The grain of wheat, the seed will come forth, the life will come forth, and the ascent will begin. The life-giving death and the life-giving resurrection. And Jesus gave them a common example. This is what it looks like. When you get a grain of wheat and it's dead and you put it in the ground, it brings forth life. In that way and no other. There's no other way to give life to this world except to implant into this world the dead living one. The living one who has died. That way and no other through that man and no other. And in that way, the gospel becomes the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first, and also to what? To the Greek. To the Greek. This is the implanting of the gospel in the world. This is what Paul says is the power of God taking place right now. And it will bring salvation to everyone who believes. Jews and then Greeks. Like these Greeks there, like we Greeks here, Gentiles, non-Israelites. We get grafted into the fruitful tree. And so the call becomes out of this to come. To come to this one to believe in this one and to have life, to seek the Lord while he may be found. To say, sir, we would see Jesus and we don't want anything else to keep us back from seeing Jesus himself. Now the passage then takes one more turn. And it's a little bit of a surprising turn, maybe not in context of the full gospel, but here perhaps it is surprising. This living, this dying fruitfulness of which Jesus has been speaking is secured by him alone, 
But then Jesus turns in the final two verses of our passage, in verses 25 and 26, and He says there's a principle embedded in, in the trajectory of my life and my death that is true not only for me, that is, not only for Jesus, but it's true for all who would take His name upon them. For all who would call themselves Christians, who will follow Him, whoever loves His life loses it, and whoever hates His life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Don't be confused by those words, this passage. This is an idiomatic expression that is being used here. Jesus isn't saying, well, you shouldn't love anyone or anything in this world, and you should hate everything about your life in this world. That's not the point that Jesus is making here. Don't hear him saying that. He's using it to make a comparative statement illustrating a rightly ordered life and rightly ordered loves in this world, that which is fruitful and that which is true and honoring to Him. He's exhorting us to follow His example, to follow His example of in this world putting the will of His Father above His own will, to saying, I'm I'm here in this world as the Son of God to do the will of my Father. What do you think you're here for? To pursue your will? If the Son of God was here to pursue His Father's will, what are we here for but to pursue our Father's will? Jesus said, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of Him who sent me, John 6. John 8, 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. John 8, 50, I do not seek my own glory. Jesus Himself practiced a life of self-denial. And if we can say it this way, because remember this is what He exhorted His followers to do, we can say that Jesus Himself practiced a life of bearing His cross daily. Now, He would bear it actually in just a few short days. But his life was a life of bearing the cross, of seeking opportunities of humble service. And the result of the life would be eternal life, honor, and glory, and fruitfulness. And he was unique, and yet what he says to us is, though I am unique, though I am the seed that has to be planted in the earth, nevertheless, it applies to you as well. It applies to us. Some of those to whom Jesus was speaking that day are those who would subsequently risk and lose their lives for the sake of the gospel. They would be martyred. They would be killed for the sake of the gospel to whom Jesus might say, in the words of Jim Elliot, he is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Give your life. You you gain what you can't lose. 
eternal life in the presence of God. In some countries of the world, even right now, if we happen to be in that country, if we happen to be from that country, my life would be in danger for doing what I'm doing now, preaching. Your life would be in danger for being here and for believing these things. Jesus says, I understand. I understand. I experienced this. I died, and yet he, Jesus, was honored, and he promises eternal life and being with him and honor to those who will follow after him. And so it is fulfilled as well that the blood of the martyrs, the blood of the martyrs is the what? Is the, is the seed of the church. Is the seed of the church. Because fruit is born in ways that we don't expect it to be born, from places where we don't expect it to bear. And we may not be at risk of losing our lives, but if the Lord is calling you to go, then go and risk it. It's worth it. He's worthy. But the call remains for us as well as the promise, and the call to us is a sacrificial living, a self-denial of servanthood. Those things are the way to be fruit-bearing, and, and fruitful living is linked to this daily dying, to self after the pattern of our Lord. All right, let's close with this. The cross is an ugly tree. And a dead man, splattered with blood, with a pierced side, hanging on a cross, is an ugly fruit. And that man taken off the cross and buried in a tomb seems like the end of an ugly episode. And it was the beginning. And it was the seed that was planted in the earth. And new life arose, and branches grew tender, and the leaves came out, and the nations saw, and here you are as proof. Here we are. We're the fruit of that life planted in the ground. Look around, we're the evidence of the veracity of what Jesus has said here. May the Lord plant us in his house and make us fruit-bearing. Fruit-bearing now and fruit-bearing into our old age as well. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the good news of the gospel of salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And if there are those who are here today who do not yet believe, would you grant them the grace to, with the Greeks, say, sir, we would see Jesus, to come and to seek you, and in so doing, to find honor and eternal life. Jesus, thank you that the hour came 
that you did not shy away from it, to glorify your name. We lift up your name as your people 2,000 years later and halfway around the world to say that you are great, you are exalted, and we are thankful. In your name, would you make us fruitful as well? Amen.